the least read section of any of Paul's letters, and often the most misunderstood, would be the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. I want you to turn with me to the 12th chapter of that book, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And what I want to do today is an exposition and application of these verses that we find in this paragraph, verses 7 through 10. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, the ministry of the thorn. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn, a stake in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Self-sufficiency is an American trademark. I suppose we come by it from our early heroes, Daniel Boone, Lewis and Clark, Davy Crockett. Our motto is that line from William Henley's poem, Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The essence of sin is self-sufficiency. The essence of Christianity is God-sufficiency. In order to diminish your self-sufficiency and to develop God-sufficiency in your life, God will permit and bring suffering. Now, Paul was no stranger to suffering. In fact, he talks about it quite a bit in these last four chapters of his letter, 2 Corinthians. Paul knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to have all of those false apostles, so-called, to dog his steps and to attack him at every level and to persecute him in every way. Paul refers to them as super apostles. It's irony. It's actually sarcasm. In fact, the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians are literally dripping with sarcasm, as Paul writes. Because these so-called super apostles had a super inflated view of themselves. And they boasted about their ministry as opposed to the weak Paul. And Paul says, well, I'm like you. I can boast and brag too. But I boast and brag not about my strength, but rather about my weaknesses. Paul brags about one of his weaknesses at the end of chapter 11 leading into this particular section. That day when in Damascus those enemies of the gospel hounded him... And his friends had to take him up to the city wall there and stuff him in a basket and lower him over the wall. And Paul says that was a moment of weakness and humiliation, but I brag about it. It would be something like today if the enemies of Dr. Patterson were to pursue him so much in this building that we had to usher him up to the top of the building and stuff him in a basket and lower him over the wall to safety. 
he would consider that to be an act of weakness, his and ours. And that's exactly what Paul did. Paul also said, let me brag about my weakness regarding this thorn in the flesh. And that's the heart of the passage that we have here today. Paul says, I'm going to boast, I'm going to brag about something. All through chapter 11, take note of the repetition of all of the words, boast and weakness. You see them scattered all through there. You see it in verse 10. You see it in verse 12. You see it in verse 16, verse 17, verse 18. Weakness in verse 21. Weak in verse 29, twice. Boasting, boasting, weakness in verse 30. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins with the word, boasting is necessary. Verse 5 of chapter 12, boast, boast, weaknesses. Verse 6, for I do wish to boast. Paul, somebody's doing a lot of boasting here. The false apostles are, and so is Paul. But what they're boasting about and what Paul's boasting about is something entirely different. Paul is going to boast about his weaknesses. You see, the question this morning for you is whether you are strong enough to be weak and whether you are weak enough to be strong. And so Paul says, God's plan for me was my humility through the thorn. So he writes in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn, a stake in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What in the world was Paul's thorn? The word thorn there is probably the best translation. It's a word that can refer to a stake. It was, could refer to the point of a javelin, the point of a fish hook. It was something sharp. It was something that was painful if it entered your body. Paul says, there was given to me a thorn. Now the $6 million question is, what was Paul's thorn? And the gallimaufry of guesses saturates the pages of New Testament literature in three major categories. The first category is, well, Paul's thorn was some kind of psychological anxiety. The pangs of his conscience over all of those Christians that he had hauled off to jail and even many that were killed because of him. Some say that was Paul's thorn. Others say Paul's thorn was his concern for the nation of Israel and their unrepentance as expressed in Romans chapter 9. Others say, no, Paul's thorn. In fact, the medieval monks, some of them said Paul's thorn was sexual lust. But, of course, they were merely projecting their own sin on Paul at that point. And so there were the, the category of psychological anxiety. Number two category is external opposition. Contextually, Paul's thorn may very well be these super apostles who dogged his steps and who persecuted him. Or others have said it's just the general persecution that Paul faced all of his life. Perhaps that was his thorn. But the third category of guesses is that of a physical malady. <laughs> The guesses along this line reads like a, like a dictionary, a medical dictionary. What was Paul's thorn? Well, it was deafness or epilepsy or gallstones or gout or gastritis or headaches or hypochondria or leprosy or malarial fever or ophthalmia, bulging of the eyeballs or sciatica or rheumatism or chronic ophthalmia, chronic trachoma, where there's a granulation of the eyelids and it's hard to look at you and it's hard to see. Most of these guesses are possible. Some are plausible, but none is provable. Fact is, we don't have a clue. 
what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And it's a good thing, too. Because you see, Paul's thorn in the flesh, by its anonymity, becomes for us something by analogy of your thorn and my thorn, of your suffering and my suffering. You see, like temptation, suffering is universal. And like temptation, suffering is infinitely varied. If we were to each pluck our thorn today, whatever it might be, march down these aisles and deposit them right here in front of the platform, what an odd and strange looking group of thorns would be there. And so whatever Paul's thorn was, he tells us four things about it in verse 7. Would you agree with me that whatever it was, it was subsequent to his great revelation. In verses 1 through 6, we don't have the time to go there and to do an exposition of that, but Paul tells about how he was called up to heaven, how whether in a vision or either in heaven himself as he was called up there to see great things and hear great things from God. And he was given a revelation and then guess what? He was told not to say a word about it. He was given a revelation that he could not reveal. And then he was given a healing that wasn't a healing. That's what he says right here in this passage of Scripture. You know, there is something about walking on the heights of heaven All of that special revelation that Paul received that he then bequeathed to us, that which he was allowed to bequeath to us through direct revelation as he wrote those 13 letters, and then other things that he tells us he was not allowed to speak. That would cause a man perhaps to become a little proud, don't you think? But you see, Paul, as he walked on those heavenly heights, in order to burst any balloon of pride... He was given the thorn. And so it came subsequent to all of those great revelations. Would you also agree with me that it was, whatever it was, substantial? Did you notice the word Paul used in verse 7? He said, this thorn was given to me to torment me. Interesting word in Greek. It literally means to pummel. (laughs) to buffet, to pummel, to punch in the face. It's actually a boxing term among its other uses. It's the picture of that boxer who in round one just gets pulverized and at the ring of the bell he stumbles back to his corner and falls on his chair there and they come and they're waving the rag and they're you know trying to do that and wipe the blood off and the trainer says to him, go get him tiger, he hasn't touched you yet. And then dazed and reeling, the boxer said, well, keep your eye on the referee. Someone's beating me to death. (laughs) And that's pretty much the way Paul must have felt when this thorn came along. It was substantial. But number three, we learned that this thorn, interestingly, was simultaneously the work of God and Satan. Look carefully. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Look carefully at that statement. There was given to me. When you look at this in the Greek New Testament, we call that particular usage there of that phrase, there was given to me the divine passive. Grammatically, the subject, the one who is giving the thorn to Paul is God himself. But yet, Paul says, not only was God involved, but Satan was involved. 
And so Paul says, this thorn that was given to me became a messenger of Satan. God and Satan involved at the same time, but for entirely different purposes. Now, don't ever forget, as Luther said, that even the devil is God's devil. And even the devil is on a leash. Have you ever seen a dog on a 15-foot chain? And there's a cat that walks out in front of that dog 16 feet away. And that dog takes out after that cat. And he gets to the end of that chain. And and that chain yanks him back. And that cat just stands there and thinks, stupid dog. Five minutes later, that dog tears out again. And the same thing happens. He can get to that 15 feet, but that's as far as he can go. Even the devil is God's devil. Now look. If you, on your own ingenuity and your own stupidity, wonder within the 15-foot radius of Satan's domain, then he will pummel you. And that's what happens when you don't obey God and don't walk with him. But even the devil is God's devil. He's like a dog on a chain. Notice that Paul's thorn was a gift of God with a purpose, but Satan had an entirely different purpose in the use of the thorn. It was simultaneously the work of God and the work of the devil. But whatever Paul's thorn was, would you agree with me as to its purpose? It is crystal clear in verse 7. In fact, Paul states it not once but twice. Bookending the verse 7 is the statement at the very beginning and the statement at the very end. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, watch this, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. And then again, he repeats it at the end of verse 7, to keep me from exalting myself. Not once, but twice, Paul says, I want to be clear. I want you to understand God's purpose in the thorn. It was to keep me from exalting myself. In God's seminary, suffering 101 is a required course. Professor Payne is the teacher. He is a tenured professor, and there are no course substitutions. Somewhere down the road, you're going to enter Suffering 101. Somewhere down the road, you're going to experience suffering. If it were possible for anyone to upgrade from suffering to first class in the Christian life, Paul would be a candidate. (laughs) Read his pedigree there in 11, in chapter 11. All that he says, everything he had been through, all the stuff he had been through. If anybody had earned the right to upgrade to first class out of suffering, it would be Paul. But he couldn't upgrade and neither can you. There's no upgrade. If you place your finger in a bucket of water... And when you remove it, you leave a hole, then you're special. But if you're like the rest of us, when you remove your finger from that water in that bucket, then you're just like everybody else. And you will enter suffering 101. Paul says, the scripture actually says there are many reasons for suffering. By the way, some of which we will never understand until we get on that side of heaven. There are many reasons for suffering. 
But one reason that Paul gives in this passage related to him specifically, God's purpose for Paul was his humility. The worm of pride is ever threatening to eat into the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The poison of pride ever sits conspicuously on the shelf of your life. It doesn't take much pride to puff up these proud hearts of ours, does it? Just a little success, a little victory, a little of the world's accolades, and we're ready to burn incense to our own accomplishments. The world gives us a little praise and we're ready to throw in our lot with her. You see, pride walks with you in the crowded highway of life as well as the lonely street. It goes with you when you go to work. It follows you home. It dogs your footsteps when you go to church. It kneels beside you when you pray. It whispers in your ear when you preach. Pride is with you when you're age 20 and it's still with you at age 40. And it's still with you at age 60 and it's with you at age 80. Pride dogs your footsteps every moment of every day, 24-7. It comes early and it stays late and it will never leave you till death do you part. Pride is the hound of hell that can only be defeated by the hound of heaven. And so God says to Paul to keep you from being puffed up. You have received a thorn in the flesh. Don't let pride ruin your Christian life. Read what the scripture has to say about pride. Pride goes before a fall. Listen. Even the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem knew that the applause was not for him. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. So God's plan is my humility through the thorn. But that leads Paul to say in verse 8, Paul's prayer is relief from the thorn. Look at what he says in verse 8. Concerning this, concerning what? Concerning this thorn, I, look at the word, implored the Lord. The word there, I implored, is a word that means to beg. Implored is a good translation. I begged the Lord. I pled with the Lord that he would remove this thorn. Oh, to Paul, his thorn was so debilitating. It so cramped his ministry. It constricted what he thought he could do for Jesus. Lord, if you could just remove this thorn, think of what I can do for you. Which is the same way we pray, isn't it? And the same way we think about it, is it not? And Paul's prayer for this thorn is that he be relieved of it. December of 2011... Sherry and I walked into a doctor's office and the door was closed and he looked at her and he said, Sherry, I'm sorry to have to tell you, but you have stage four colon cancer and it's spread to your liver and we've got to immediately get you to an oncologist and immediately get you on treatment. 
That was the day my wife entered Suffering 101. And walking with her and holding her hand, she was enrolled in the class. And I was an auditor of it. I was with her for three years and nine months. Fifty chemo treatments. Three surgeries. And all of the accoutrements that go along with the aftermath of chemo. When you feel lousy and you feel terrible and you hurt and you can't eat and your feet hurt and your, your fingers hurt. Things feel cold to you and you don't sleep well and you throw up. And that's just the good part of it. For three years and nine months, I watched my wife walk through suffering. And do you know what? During that time, we prayed for God to heal her physically. Oh, how we prayed. Like Paul said, he prayed here in verse 8. He said, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times. When Paul says he prayed three times, that could mean that he prayed many times. It could be a number that reflects innumerable numbers of times. Or it could mean that there were three particular, particularly sessions of prayer that Paul pled with God to remove that thorn. And whatever it means, Paul said, Lord, I can do better for you if you'll get rid of this thorn. Lord, please remove it. And Sherry and I pled with God, and my children joined us, and many of you joined us, and we prayed regularly. We prayed for physical healing. We begged, we implored God to heal Sherry. Have you ever gotten God's silent treatment? When you pray in the heavens, seem like brass. And though he hasn't, it seems like he's turned your back on you. And you plead with God in prayer and you get his silent treatment. Have you ever experienced that? Never mistake the silence of God for the indifference of God. God may be silent. For a particular period of time, with good purpose and reason known to him, which he may reveal to you in his good time. But during his silence, oh, he is not indifferent. 400 years we call the intertestamental period the silent years. No writing prophet during that time. If you were an Israeli, a Jew, you're born during that time. Whole families, whole generations, born, lived, died. No Messiah. No prophecy about the Messiah. The Jews could have thought, God's given up. He's finally had it with us. We've sinned our way past His love and His covenant. But little would they have known that the next event on God's calendar was the birth of the Messiah. Never mistake the silence of God. For the indifference of God to your life. And so, Paul begged God, take it away. And God answered Paul's ends of his prayer 
by a different means that Paul requested in his prayer. You see, Paul's, the end that Paul wanted was relief from the thorn. And the means that Paul wanted to get there, the only means he knew was removal. Monica, mother of Augustine, prayed diligently for her wayward boy. Oh, he was a playboy. He was out there involved in every kind of sin you can imagine, sleeping with every girl he could find, having a good old time in his pagan life. There at Carthage, Augustine had a friend about to set sail for Italy. Augustine had always wanted to go to Italy. Monica had pled with God, don't let my boy go to Italy. If he goes there and falls into all of the sin there in Rome, he will never come to Jesus Augustine said, Mom, I'm going on ship to say goodbye to my friend. And the next morning when Monica awakened, the ship had sailed and Augustine was on it. And he made his way to Italy. And Monica was brokenhearted. She felt like God had not answered her prayers. But when Augustine arrived in Italy, in Milan, he came under the spell of the preaching of the great Ambrose. And Augustine was converted. And though God did not grant Monica's request, he did answer her prayer. You see, you've got to understand the difference between means and ends in prayer. God may choose not to give you what you ask in order that he may give you what you need. That's what God did with Paul. Lord, I can't serve you with this thorn. Lord, I can't be what you want me to be. I can't preach like I ought to preach. I can't write like I ought to write. I can't do what I want to do. Lord, I'm so restricted. Lord, if you would just take away this thorn. And then comes verse 9. God breaks his silence. And Paul records in verse 9, And he has said to me. Now watch this. The text goes from indirect speech, Paul recording what he said, what he thought, indirect speech, and now when it comes to the Lord's response... The text moves to direct speech. Look at the quotation marks. This is an actual response that God gave Paul. And the response is there in verse 9. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Notice the perfect tense of that verb, he has said, and it's still ringing in my ears now as I write to you, Paul says. This is God's eternal perfect tense. He has given me his final word. Here is God's answer to my prayer. It's not exactly what I wanted. It's not what I thought, but it's what I needed. He has said to me, my grace, and now comes the eternal present tense, is sufficient for you. The eternal perfect is now followed by the eternal present. In fact, two eternal present tense tense verbs. My grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in weakness. There is the heart of the Christian life. 
There is what it means to walk with Christ. Is to discover that whatever the needs are in your life, whatever the burdens, the trials, the hurts, the pains, the thorn, that the stake that pierces your heart, whatever it is, hear the Lord say to you today, like he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> grace. I have not the time to give you that theological, biblical definition of grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's unmerited favor to you. It's an undeserved gift. Grace is all that God does for you through Christ that flows out of the cross where Jesus suffered on that cross. Grace is what saved you. Grace is what guides you. Grace is what enables you. And notice the juxtaposition of grace and power and think back to Acts chapter 6 verse 5 and 8 and look at it later and discover that the three words grace power and the holy spirit there in acts are basically all used interchangeably whenever you have grace you've got god's power whenever you have grace and power you have god the holy spirit and because you have god the holy spirit indwelling you today as a believer god's grace is ever sufficient for you and his power is always available to you no matter what in your life Come hell or high water, sink or swim, live or die, my grace is sufficient for you. Last two words you ever want to see on the screen of your ATM is insufficient funds. But you will never come to God's bank of grace and write a check on that bank and ever be told, sorry, insufficient funds. No, there's plenty of money in his account. Go ahead and write that check on his account. There's enough money in God's grace bank to cover whatever your need is today. That's the power. That's the grace That's what God gives us. It is sufficient grace. It is sufficient power. And notice the strange arithmetic. Notice that it is, as he says in verse 9, he says power is perfected in weakness. What? How can that be? That makes no sense. Nobody on Wall Street would ever say that. Nobody in any NFL team would ever say that. No one in anyone other organization would ever say that power is perfected in weakness? You've got to be kidding me. But that's the way it works in God's economy. You better learn it. My grace is sufficient for you no matter what because power, my power implied, God says, is perfected in your weakness Paul, most gladly, therefore, will I brag and boast about my weaknesses. There's our word, boast. Paul's boasting again. (laughs) He's bragging again. And notice there's our word, weakness, again. It occurs twice there in verse 9. He's bragging and boasting about his weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ can rest on him. There's another word in Greek, the power of Christ can dwell over me. That word is only used once in the Greek New Testament right here. It's a word that means God's power will tabernacle over me. 
It's sort of an Old Testament allusion to the Shekinah of God, the very glory of God that appeared over his tabernacle so that wherever the people of God went, there was the presence of God tabernacling over them, guiding them, providing for them, leading them in every direction, protecting them. And that same God who guided Israel in the Exodus is our God today who says, my grace is sufficient for you. Your, my power, your power, my power is given to you and it converts your weakness into my power. So I'll be happy to boast about it, Paul says, so that I'll boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can tabernacle over me. The question today is whether you are weak enough to be strong and strong enough to be weak. Paul acknowledged his impotence to serve God without God's empowering. In his weakness, in our weakness, Christ's power reaches its plentitude in your life. That's what Paul is saying. This is what he's teaching us this morning. This is what it's all about. Verse 10, therefore... Paul says, I'll be content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Oh, don't miss the next three words. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses. With insults. Distresses, persecutions, and difficulties. The first word, weaknesses, is the general term. And then Paul says, let me specify. Here are four specific examples. Insults, verbal or physical. Distresses. When daily needs of my life are unmet, Paul says, I'm still dependent on God's grace. And I have to boast, I boast, I'm content with these weaknesses. Persecutions means physical harm to his body. And lastly, the word difficulties. <laughs> Interesting word in the Greek New Testament. It means tight corners. The etymology of the word. It's when you're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. What are you going to do? And God says, hey, boy, your weakness is an opportunity for me to magnify my strength in you. My grace is sufficient for you. And so, Sherry... I watched her. I watched her first pray to escape suffering. And then I watched her and listened to her as she prayed to endure suffering. And then to my amazement, she taught me and so did God. I watched her as she prayed to God to enlist her suffering. For his glory and for the good of the people of God. Tom Eliff is the immediate past president of the International Mission Board. His sweet wife, Jeannie, and Sherry, my wife, were foxhole buddies in their battle against cancer. For three years and nine months, when Sherry was diagnosed, they corresponded sometimes on. Facebook and sometimes email, some, sometimes on the phone, once or twice in person. And Jeannie Elliff was a tremendous blessing 
and encouragement to my wife. They died four weeks apart. Fifteen years ago, Tom Elliff preached a sermon where I was in the audience. He preached a sermon on an interesting text I'd really never noticed much before. Psalm 147.3. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God spoke to me in a very real way that day. It was more than 15 years ago. And I don't understand it, but it's as if the Lord said, Now, son, take careful notes and listen to this. And I did. I took very careful notes from his sermon. And I went back and reflected on that text many a time, having no clue that 15 years later I would need the promise that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Have you ever noticed the next verse that follows verse 3 in Psalm 147? Well, verse 4 says, He counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. Interesting, isn't it? The juxtaposition of worlds and wounds. And when it says He counts the stars, there is something that no one can do. Have you ever tried to count them? You can't do it. But God not only can number them, the millions that are there, the millions of galaxies, the billions of stars, God can not only number them, He calls them by name. And it's almost as if, and by the way, that phrase there, He calls them by name. Take a good look at that in Hebrew. And discover that the word is a military term that means the muster roll, the roll call in the morning when the soldiers are there and they're being called out. And so I can imagine God as he's calling out the roll call of some of his stars. Altair, here. Arcturus, here. Aldebaran, here. Betelgeuse, here. Cassiopeia, here. Canopus, here. Deneb, here. Procyon, present. There's one in every galaxy. (laughs) Rigel, here. Sirius, here. Vega, here. Boys, I want you to shine your brightest tonight because the genies and the series of the world are hurting, and I want you to testify and remind them that... I love and care about them just like I count you and know your name. I know their names. And I'm the one who heals the broken in heart and who binds up their wounds. The God of the stars is the God of my scars. The God of the stars is the God of my scars they say there is such a thing as painless dentistry I've seen that claimed painless dentistry come to our office have your teeth worked on it won't hurt you a bit painless dentistry I don't know if there's a such thing as painless dentistry or not but I know this there is no such thing as painless power in the economy of God. You want God's power in your life? Hmm? Huh? You want want God's power in your life? Then expect pain 
Because as Paul says, there is no opportunity for power without pain. Pain becomes a medium of God's power. It transforms character. It deepens you. It sweetens you. Sorrow becomes a tool in the toolbox of the master craftsman to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. I watched that occur for three years and nine months with my wife. And even in the process, I saw God used his hammer and file on me a little bit too. And I think and hope that I'm more like Jesus today than I was three years and nine months ago because of it. Spurgeon said that he has benefited more from the hammer and file in God's tool chest that when his classroom is the darkest, I see most clearly. That's what Paul is saying. This is what God is teaching us. A famous Vienna music professor had a star pupil. She was magnificent. He said about her, she had a magnificent voice. But then he said this, there's something lacking. Life has been too good to her. But if someone were to break her heart, she would become the finest singer in Europe. Credentials without grace equals bankruptcy. Get that degree. Go as far as God calls you to go. Earn that PhD if God leads you to do that. Learn all that you can learn, but never forget that all of the credentials of your life, apart from God's grace, equals bankruptcy. You are nothing without God's grace. And you can do nothing without God's grace. Thorns make us useful. Paul's thorn blossomed. At the throne of grace, Paul learned the meaning of the thorn of grace. Paul's thorn blossomed. You need to let God do that in your life. You need to understand today, just like God has been teaching me through these recent years that I am more useful to him thorned than thornless. And so are you. You cannot drink the grapes. They have to be crushed. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. A.W. Tozer said God never uses a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. And ladies, speaking generically, God never uses a man or a woman greatly until he hurts them deeply. Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Waters, is taken from that biblical passage about the pool of Bethesda where 
The angel comes and people who are sick and maimed and blind gather around those waters believing that when the angel comes and troubles those waters, those first who step into the waters will have the opportunity to be healed. A physician, a doctor with an infirmity stepped forward and begged the angel to be healed of his infirmity. And the angel said this to him, Without your wound, where would your power be? In love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. In love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Take a look at the litany of Old Testament men and women greatly used by God and discover that truth. Turn to the pages of your New Testament and recognize that truth there in the life of Paul, Peter, and everyone else. And then the supreme example, of course, is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Authentic ministry, you want one? I'm talking about an authentic ministry. Would you like to have one? Authentic ministry is God's power in your weakness. It's sufficient grace versus your self-sufficiency. Stop wrapping up all of the self-sufficient things that are insufficient and trying to present them to God and start wrapping yourself and enfolding yourself in God's grace and watch your weakness be transformed into His power. So the purpose of it all is threefold. Number one, humility. Number two is dependence. And number three is usability. God says, I've got to have you humble. God says for you to be humble, you can't be self-sufficient and self-dependent. You've got to be dependent upon me, Paul. And in order, Paul, for you to be useful, these things have to be true. You've got to be humble. You've got to be dependent. And then by my grace, I, Paul, will make you useful. And so in this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, God teaching you and me this lesson. Why don't you stop praying for pain's removal and start praying for pain's conversion in your life so that it would be converted to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Missionary Amy Carmichael wrote the poem, No Scar. No scar, hast thou no scar, no scar in foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung, is mighty in the land. I hear them hail, thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening wolves that compassed me. I swooned, Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? And so God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. And you know what Paul discovered? On the other side 
of his thorn, God gave him a greater ministry. You see, God, only God can give you a greater ministry on the other, th- other side of your thorn. When Sherry began her journey with cancer, she began to write update emails to her prayer warriors, as she called them. The list started out to be 50, then 100, then 200, and then it kept growing. And she would not only send that list out, but she would also put her prayer updates on her Facebook. And her updates merged into devotionals of what God was teaching her, journal, little journal entries of what God was teaching her. And she wrote such from her heart. You know, you think you know somebody I was married to for 37 years. I, I never realized the gifting that she had. And in those three years and nine months, God used her in her writing to touch the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. Everywhere I go now, people say, oh, yeah, I, I know who you are. You're Sherry Allen's husband. And I'm proud to wear that moniker. God used her on the other side of her thorn. He gave her a ministry. And he will do that for you. I could read you hundreds and hundreds of emails and cards and letters. But I want to read you one from someone who received her emails. You see, her emails were passed on and her Facebook was shared and shared and shared. Thousands of people all over the place. It was unbelievable. Here's an American airline pilot who wrote her in June of this year. Dear beloved sister in Christ, it's midnight here in New York City. Whenever your emails reach me, I've always stopped whatever I'm doing to read them and contemplate the living sermon that your life expresses. Though I can recall many sermons, the one that most encourages me and that means the most is your dependence and appropriation of God's grace in your last years. Yes, seeing a working model has preached the greatest message imaginable. While I'm grieved that you are suffering so much, I also know that this is the only time we can fully experience the grace of God and His enablement. As Isaiah 53.10 says concerning Jesus, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. Like Jesus, only when we are suffering can our Christian character be fully manifested. Praise God for your testimony and life. An American Airlines pilot. One of the hundreds of letters or cards I could give you. God gave Sherry a measure of grace in her suffering such that on the other side of her thorn, she had a greater ministry than she could have ever had in any other way. 1987, little 18-month-old Jessica McClure was playing in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas. She was dangling her feet over an innocent-looking 18-inch hole in the ground. But when she stood up, she lost her footing, and she fell into an abandoned water well. And she fell down until she was lodged one leg up and one leg down, wedged in that pipe, 
22 feet below the surface. Americans watched their televisions with bated breath as they prayed for her rescue. Emergency personnel came and drilled a parallel shaft down five feet away from that old water well and then came across five feet and a little bit upward. They drilled 28 feet down and then across and up to try to reach her. But solid Texas rock and equipment failure dragged on to 58 hours trying to rescue little Jessica. Medical personnel were afraid that her dehydration and shock would take her life quickly. When they finally were able to reach her and hook her up to some medical connections, she was so tightly wedged that they couldn't get her out. The medical personnel above read her signs and knew that that critical point between life and death had arrived. Robert O'Donnell was the emergency technician that went down the shaft and came across to where he could touch her in order to try to free her and pull as he may and her crying as he pulled, he couldn't free her. And then a voice came down the shaft, Robert, Robert, pull hard, Robert. You may have to break her in order to save her. And Robert did pull hard, so hard that she lost a toe and so hard that he scraped her face across the side of that metal pipe. But a few minutes later when he emerged with little Jessica in his arms above ground, nobody ever accused Robert O'Donnell of child abuse because everybody knew that if he had not scarred her, he could not save her. As reverently as I know how to say this, And with no human being ever possibly being able to enter into the Father and the Son on that day, into the mind of the Father and Son on that day at Calvary. When Jesus from the cross cried out and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can imagine that maybe it was like as if God were saying, My son... I have to break you in order to save them. It's the only way. And there on the cross, Jesus suffered and Jesus died for our sins. Grace sufficient for us all. Had he not worn the crown of thorns, I could not wear the crown of life. Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. By his stripes, by his scars, we are healed. Jesus is the wounded healer who died on the cross for us. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine.
My grace is sufficient for you.